Hello, everybody, and welcome to Divergent Perspectives, where we analyze the different issues going on in the world today. On today's episode, what we're going to be discussing on the domestic side of things are voting issues, unemployment and underemployment issues, the economy, healthcare, and of course, COVID and vaccination efforts. On the international side of things, I want to speak about something that's been in the news recently that I happen to know quite a bit of information on. I went to university for international studies. That's what I received my master's in. Now, this does not mean that I'm an expert in this topic, which happens to be the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What it means is that I most likely know more than the average person does on this given topic. So to start off, let's talk about voting restrictions that are happening across the United States. There are multiple states right now that have enacted laws that severely restrict predominantly people of color's access to voting. So what we're going to examine first is the Georgian bill on voting rights. Some of the things that this bill does is it expands early voting in most Georgia counties, which is not a bad thing. So previously, Georgia required only one Saturday of early voting. Now, this bill will require counties to have at least two Saturdays of early voting with the option of offering voting on Sunday as well. This is a good thing. But one of the biggest issues that has come up is the ID requirement. I am for many things with regards to protecting the sanctity of American elections. I would even be for ID requirements if certain prerequisites were met by the state and local governments in mandating an ID requirement. Now, what I mean by this is IDs are not something that is given to citizens. IDs are something that is purchased by the citizens of that state. Now, what Georgia has done here is they have told the county registrar's offices and the Georgia Department of Driver Services that they can issue free state ID cards, which is a good workaround to this issue. One of the biggest things that the Georgian law does is it has new rules to regulate drop boxes and shortens timeframes for requesting and returning mail ballots. Before, in the 2020 election, what you could do as a Georgian citizen is go to any Dropbox and drop off your ballot at any time of day because they were available 24-7 and there were multiple Dropboxes available in each given county. Now, this law specifies a certain amount of Dropboxes which has been greatly reduced from the number that we saw in 2020 and a time frame of which you are able to drop your ballot in said boxes. So not only are they limiting the amount of drop boxes available, but they're also limiting the time when those boxes are accessible, which is not a fair practice to the people of Georgia. Another big issue that we're seeing is in the food and drink distribution to voters in line by non-poll workers, uh, which has been banned. Now, they say that self-service, quote-unquote, water stands are now allowed, but here's the issue with that. Georgia tends to get really hot. Now, there is primary voting, which happens during the summer typically, and there is general election voting, which happens during the fall. If you live up north, if you live down south, you don't really have fall too often. But these time frames mean that when you're going to vote, 
it's going to be pretty hot some days, especially during the summer in Georgia. 100% humidity, very hot. You're going to need some water. You're going to need some food to be waiting in a line for maybe an hour, an hour and a half to vote. And the issue with this portion of the law is that people are stating that it's going to adversely affect the elderly and the very young and those with medical issues because they need food, they need drinks in order to be in line for such lengthy amounts of times, which we saw in the 2020 election, people standing in line, even in my state of Connecticut, which is an incredibly rare event for as long as an hour and a half. So Georgia has done something to try to address this issue of waiting in lines for extended periods of time. What they stated in this new law is any precinct with over 2,000 voters in the last election or one that kept voters waiting for over an hour to vote must create an additional precinct or add more resources to reduce wait times. The issue with this is how is this going to be monitored? How is this going to be tracked? And how are they going to enforce this law? There are no mechanisms of enforcement surrounding this issue of waiting in line. Another thing that we saw come out of this law is that the state election board will have new powers and it will no longer be chaired by the secretary of state in Georgia. This is an issue because the members of the state election board, including the chair, will now be elected by the general assembly, which will give more power to the Republican controlled state legislature in Georgia. Now, it states that no members of the board or the chair himself or herself may serve simultaneously in the state legislature, which is a good cutoff to ensure that the board remains nonpartisan in nature. The issue with this is we all know what happens when the people who put you into a position of power are now overseeing your position within that board. You tend to want to vote and act in a manner in which you can retain your position, which would mean giving deference to the Republican-controlled state legislature. Another big issue that we're seeing is in the runoff election period, which will now be five weeks shorter. Before, the runoff election period used to happen uh, nine weeks after the general election. Now, it's to be held 28 days after the election, which can cause some issues here. Because some states take incredibly lengthy periods of time to certify their general election voting records. And there may not be enough time for Georgia to properly certify its voting records and hold a runoff election at the same time. So these are some of the issues that are being analyzed right now to determine their effects when we look at these voting rights acts that are being attempted to be passed through the southern portion of America. Now we're going to discuss unemployment and underemployment and the economy during COVID. There's been a lot of talk about uh, record job numbers being needed to be filled by private companies. And the problem that these corporations are saying is that they're not getting enough people to fill them. The issue is out of the 8.1 million jobs that are left to fill, the average wage for all of these jobs combined is near $11 an hour. Now, when you look at the state with the lowest cost of living, which is South Dakota, you'll need to make $12.61 an hour to live a life in that state. You can clearly see how this would be an issue for any person living in any other state 
that is not even the state with the lowest cost of living. Another big issue that we're seeing is when federal unemployment benefits were halved from the added $600 a week to $300 a week, researchers saw that in 15 counties in Illinois, the spending levels dropped by 5%. This is extremely worrying because another previous study showed that the average American is saving and not spending because of severe uncertainty that they associate with the COVID-19 pandemic. This can affect, you know, national GDP levels in our economy as a whole. And what we will see in the future is 18 states that are Republican-led are going to try canceling federal unemployment benefits to encourage people to apply for jobs. What I believe we will see in this state is a severe decline in consumer spending. And unfortunately, I do believe it's going to have a ripple effect on the economy and most importantly, it will affect other Americans' sense of securities when they see a decline in spending or quarterly GDP on the news across the nation. Another issue is that people think that unemployed persons are not going back to work because they're getting extra funding from the federal government in their unemployment checks. This has been shown multiple times to not be the case. When people were laid off at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, women were adversely affected at much higher rates than men were, especially because women tend to have jobs in the areas that were affected more by the coronavirus pandemic. Not only this, but women are the primary caretakers of children and elderly parents and siblings, which may not be able to provide for themselves in their families. And because we are seeing schools not fully open yet, or healthcare facilities not to 100% capacity yet, we're seeing these women are not able to look and search for jobs. So that brings us to our vaccination efforts in this nation as a whole. Now, as of a couple days ago, there are 154 million Americans, nearly 47% of our entire population, that have received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. The other good news is that we also have nearly 35% fully vaccinated Americans to date. I strongly believe that once we reach a position where we can have herd immunity in this nation, we will then see a sharp incline in the amount of people looking for jobs and jobs being filled because what we saw in Israel, where they have vaccinated a large portion of their population, was that that hesitancy to search for positions due to COVID hesitancy has gone down, meaning people are looking for work because they're not scared of contracting COVID or bringing COVID home to at-risk family members or friends. Now, since we're on the topic of Israel, let's discuss something on the international side of things. We see today many videos, many audio recordings, and pretty disturbing images coming out of the Gaza region of Palestine. Now, the issues associated with this conflict are far and wide, and they span more than 120 years. So it'd be extremely difficult to fit all the information necessary for one to know about the beginnings of that conflict and how that has affected 
its progression to this date and time and to the start of the current battles that we see happening in the region today. But what we can do is we can discuss some of the base issues that led to what we're seeing today. One of these issues was the great migration of Jewish persons after World War II from Europe to the land of Palestine. We all know why Jewish people migrated from Europe after World War II to Palestine, so we're not going to discuss these reasons. It's very well known in history as to those reasons, but what we can discuss is the actions of the United Nations in 1947. This year was extremely pivotal in the development of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because the land that was known as Palestine before was all-encompassing of today's Israel, Gaza, and other portions of Palestine. Now, before, it was just all known as Mandatory Palestine, which was under British rule since the 19-teens. And after the British gave up their control after World War II of this region, the issue of dividing the land out among the inhabitants of that land was given to the United Nations by the British. Unfortunately, the British didn't really have the authority to give up land that has been held by people for over a thousand years. So needless to say, the Palestinians were not too happy about the idea of a new international agency being given control over the dividing of their land. Needless to say, the Palestinians rejected this proposal. And while the Jewish persons agreed to it, that did not matter because it wasn't universally accepted. So what followed was the war for the Jewish state in Palestine. And as we all know, the Israelis won and modern day Israel was created. So just think about this to yourself. If a land was created on war and death and destruction and the ousting of an entire ethnic population, which is what followed after the creation of Israel, do you think that there would ever be a lasting peace in that region? I don't know of anybody that is of sound mind that will say peace can be achieved through war, destruction, and displacement of persons. Needless to say, the fighting continued from the various surrounding Arab states that surround Israel, and it culminated in what became known as the Six-Day War. In this war in 1967, Israel seized the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt, the Golan Heights from Syria, and the West Bank and East Jerusalem from Jordan. What they said was that Arab aggression was coming to its borders and they needed these positions as buffer zones. They offered to return the territories in exchange for Arab recognition of the right of Israel to exist and guarantees against future attacks on Israel's. At the time, Arab leaders declined the peaceful agreement. However, Egypt would eventually return and negotiate the return of the Sinai Peninsula in exchange for full diplomatic recognition of Israel. 
This did not happen till much later. Although I'm going to skip over a couple major events, what I wanted to talk about also was the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. This occurred in 1982 and is significant for multiple reasons. One of which, and probably the most important, is because we saw the development of Hezbollah, which is classified as a terrorist organization by the Western world, but is a political organization within Lebanon today, come out of this conflict. The reason why understanding Hezbollah is so important is because although they do not control a majority of seats within the Lebanese legislature, they hold the real power within the nation today. Needless to say, this organization is heavily anti-Israeli in nature because the circumstances from which they were born out of was the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. It may shock you to learn that the Israelis were welcomed as liberators when they invaded in 1982, but it wasn't until they became occupiers that they became hated in the region. And as a result of their occupation, it's been stated by multiple sources that they were a primary cause in the development of this organization known as Hezbollah. Now you may be asking yourself, why is Hezbollah so important today in this conflict between the Israelis and Palestinians? It's not Israel versus Hezbollah, it's Israel versus the Palestinians. The reason why Hezbollah plays such a pivotal role in this fight is because Hezbollah is supported and assisted by Iran. Iran is viewing its position within the Middle East as a whole to be the defender of the plight of the Palestinians, which is to say that they believe they are the primary supporting force in the fight for a fully Palestinian state to emerge within the Middle East. And Hezbollah is significant to Israel because Hezbollah is the only Western-designated terrorist organization to have weapons manufacturing capabilities. So when people ask me if they believe that this conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians can evolve into something much more dramatic and disastrous for the region as a whole, my answer to that is yes, it can have regional effects. What we are seeing today is a steady escalation on the part of Israel and the Palestinians against each other. But what we can see in the future is outside sources joining in on the fight as we notice the battles to become more lopsided. As it's no shock to anybody who knows anything about conflict in general that Israel is a heavily modernized and weaponized state. And they have enormous weapon capabilities, whereas the Palestinians do not. Most of the time, Palestinian weapon capabilities is limited to 1970 and 80 weapons manufacturing status, whereas the Israelis have Gen 4, Gen 5 advanced weapons capabilities. Most recently, we saw the Israelis bomb a building in which the Associated Press houses their people. Thankfully, there was nobody in the building at the time in which this building was bombed and reduced to rubble, but it shows just how destructive and disastrous this conflict is getting for not only the people within the region, but also people 
that are from outside of the region. So this conflict is starting to have international effects as it always has had. And one of the reasons is because of the United States support for the state of Israel, which goes back to the 1940s under the Truman administration. What is known to most everybody within the United States is we are a nation that supports the sustentation of the state of Israel, which essentially means we support its staying, its right to exist, and we support it monetarily. What may not be known to many people within this country is the extent to which we support it monetarily. Not only do we support it with taxpayer funding to the tune of more than $4 billion a year, but there is private citizen donations to the state of Israel that total in the tens of billions per year. Now, while I am a firm believer in that anybody can do with their money as they please, I am not a believer in giving money to a nation that can provide for itself, which is what we do every year with the state of Israel through the use of taxpayer funds. And what's even worse is what Israel does with this funding, which is create more weapons, advance their technological capability to squeeze and cut off the Palestinians from the rest of the world. As we saw most recently with the COVID-19 pandemic, the limitations that Israel placed on Gaza Strip and the West Bank in terms of medicine imports, uh, Israel was blockading medical imports to these places. And this was particularly heinous in nature because it was directly contributing to deaths within the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They also control water distribution and the distribution of electricity to these regions and can turn them both on and off at will, which is what they've done on many occasions to squeeze the populations within these areas. So the situation in Israel right now is particularly worrying for a few different reasons, most of which because of its potential to attract international actors to start involving themselves in this conflict and making it much bigger than it should be, but also because it is one of the major issues that contributes to instability within the Middle East as a whole. The plight of the Palestinians is one of the root causes for instability within the Middle East region over the past 120 years, and it will continue to be one of the main reasons why there is no peace in this region. Now, if you would like to learn more about the Palestinian issues, then just let me know and I will continue to talk about them. If you would like to know more about domestic issues, also let me know and I will continue to talk about that. If you want me to go more in depth about any given topic or you want me to speak about something that's particularly pressing on your mind, I am more than willing to explore all options that my listeners would want to hear. So just let me know. And we'll take it from there. In future episodes, you can look for me inviting experts on these particular topics to join me in my podcast. And remain subscribed so that you can see all future episodes. And have a great day.